Our reading for today is titled Stormy Forecast by Frank X. Walker. Last night at the height of the drama, it was me perched by the open window, listening for sirens, worried the ominous sound, and the wind was more than the sun thunderstorm that seemed to park itself in our backyard. After checking all the doors and windows again, I wondered about the pair of cardinals and the humble sparrows that breakfast at our kitchen window. I thought about the smallest of birds roosted upstairs in the still half-naked trees. When the sky burst open again with crackling searchlights, with momentary sun followed by a deep throated rumble that shook everything in the house, did they squeeze their perches tighter, tuck their heads under their wings and huddle beneath the co covers like we did? Did they waste a moment co contemplating fear and humility or simply dream of fat worms the rain would coax out? grateful for the synchronicity and power of spring storms and their need for fresh nesting supplies. When they sing back daylight, unlock their throats and call us up a new sun, will they simply have slept through it all? Or will they regret their anxiety-ridden tears exchanges traded in the night, the two real dreams made darker by the evening news and worry even a little about who in their tree will be taking their last flight. On the evening of May 31st, a woman by the name of Mary Jones Parrish was finishing up teaching a class at the local YMCA where she lived. She taught typing and shorthand. I know we have a few people uh, in our congregation that still remember how to write in shorthand. Mary Parrish was also a trained journalist, born in Yazoo City, Mississippi, having lived in Rochester, New York, before moving to Tulsa, Oklahoma in the year 1919. It was about 9 p.m. when she finished teaching. Her students usually cleared out of class quickly, and she was able to head home and enjoy the rest of her evening. This particular night was mild and pleasant, she recalls, the kind of evening that made someone happy to live in Oklahoma before tornado season or the blistering heat. Much like here in Kentucky, the evenings surrounding us now make the humid days of August feel like an acceptable cost. Mary's young daughter was still wide awake, peering out the front room windows to people watch, to people watch and shouting back to her mother what was happening on the street. Mary asked her daughter to not disturb her. She was eager to finish reading a book. But little did Mary Jones Parrish know she would never finish reading that book. Her daughter suddenly exclaimed, Mother, I see men with guns. Mary rushed to the window and looked out at her neighborhood. She saw little clusters of people gathering with rifles, shotguns, and handguns. Each grouping was talking excitedly, hands waving in the air. She went outside and asked what was happening. We're going to the jailhouse, they told her. There's a white mob trying to lynch an innocent boy. We're going to protect him. Many of the people who gathered and went to the jailhouse that night were World War I veterans. 
the little squads of people gathered together, forming a mass that marched on the jailhouse. Over a thousand white men gathered there as well, demanding mob justice on a 19-year-old boy named Dick Rowland, who was accused of assaulting a white girl in an elevator. Even though the police determined no assault occurred, the papers still published it as such. The mob still believed he needed to die. A shot rang out in the evening outside that jailhouse, and from there, the quiet late spring night in Tulsa erupted into two days of violence and bloodshed. Mary Jones Parish watched as more groups of people, all armed, continued to head toward the jailhouse. She put her daughter to bed and she watched and waited some more, much like Frank X. Walker talks about watching and waiting the storm and wondering what will happen. Not sure what she was looking for, Mary Jones Parish could still hear gunshots in the distance in rapid succession. And then she finally let it sink in. This was what this was what was what was like what happened in Chicago or Washington that she read in the papers. The city could very well, she feared, be torn apart that night. The shots continued in the distance, and she decided to check on her daughter, ensuring that she was asleep. She grabbed her Bible, she read a few psalms quietly to herself for comfort, for strength. She feared she and her daughter would not make it through the night. Whites and blacks from across Tulsa met at the train tracks dividing the city and clashed violently into the evening. Around 1.30 in the morning, the shooting quieted down, but smoke started to rise from the black neighborhoods. They were being set on fire. Parrish fought her urge to flee and decided to stay, feeling like she was supporting open warfare, she described it, and praying for her troops to win the day. Or in other words, for Black Tulsans to win against the lynch mob, a mob that had grown to consume the city. Shots continued to ring out. More fires were set. The Midway Hotel was ablaze by 3 a.m., People called the fire department only to be told they're on their way. But the firefighters never came. Carloads of white men continued to arrive with rifles as the black part of Tulsa burned. And the entire night was filled with fire. By morning, Parrish had hoped the violence would end. Instead, she was greeted with the sound of buzzing in the air. She writes, there was a great shadow in the sky, and upon a second look, we discerned that this cloud was caused by fast approaching aeroplanes. It then dawned upon us that the enemy had organized in the night and was invading our district, the same as the Germans invaded France and Belgium. The firing of guns was renewed in quick succession. What Parrish saw in the sky were people leaning out of the planes with high-powered rifles to shoot upon the crowds. They threw gasoline bombs onto buildings. Eventually, Parrish took her daughter and fled, realizing her home could be aflame any second. She wandered down the street. People yelled at her, telling her that she would get shot in the street, but she figured, as she reflected, that it would be better to be shot in the street than to be burned in her home. She prayed and continued to leave the city, joining others who were fleeing as the violence continued. The crowd got larger and larger as they fled. Eventually, she got on the back of a truck and headed out of town. The truck moved so slowly, 
hordes of people filling the roads leaving Tulsa. As Parrish slowly passed by an elderly couple, they reached up and asked her to hold on to their coats for them. They were tired and the coats were suddenly feeling much heavier. She grabbed the coats and the truck continued on its way out of town. Parrish never saw the old couple again, though she looked for them. What followed was a morning of shuffling, moving, following the Red Cross and taking shelter where she and her daughter could with everyone else. She found herself 13 miles outside of Tulsa, though she could still see smoke rising from the city. The next morning around 10 a.m. she heard that Greenwood, the part of Tulsa known as Black Wall Street, where Parrish and thousands of Black Tulsans lived, she heard it was burned to the ground. It was at that point that Parrish finally cried, the fear and trauma finally catching up with her. When Parrish finally returned to Tulsa, she found a city in ruin, at least the Black neighborhood. In order to enter her former neighborhood, a white person had to vouch for her, and she was issued a badge that said, police protection on it. She had to wear it at all times, as did all Black Tulsans who wanted to return to their burned homes and businesses. Parrish wanted to at once flee and stay. She wanted to protect her family and also see this through. And so she accepted a job from the Interracial Commission in Tulsa to report on what happened, to collect testimonies and eyewitness accounts. And so she did. The words of Mary Joan Parrish were gathered together along with dozens of eyewitness testimonies of what occurred in late May and early June of 1921, 100 years ago as of this week, in what would become known as the Tulsa Race Massacre, the most violent episode of racial violence in our nation's history. But I would clarify, the most violent episode of racial violence in two short days. Over 10,000 black Americans were displaced by the violence. Nearly 1,000 people were injured. Officially, 39 people were confirmed killed, though some accounts say anywhere between 150 and 350 people. The record keeping has some significant gaps in it. Homes and businesses were looted and burned or firebombed from private aircraft over a 40 square block area. That's about 100 to 120 acres. All of this destruction and violence over an alleged assault that the police investigated and found no conclusive evidence for. Parrish would collect her own account as well as the dozens of other accounts from her reporting in a book that she independently published back in 1923. Until just a few days ago, it was not widely available. But in the book, The Nation Must Rise, Parrish's granddaughter collects the text as it was written by her grandmother and adds an afterword of her own, reflecting on how she discovered this book. For nearly 100 years, that book has been lost to archives and academic libraries, and it was never widely known. Snippets would be in histories and dissertations, but here it is, alive in 2021, ready for us to grapple with our history and how that history is impacting us today. I need to be honest with all of you. I wasn't taught about the Tulsa race massacre in school. I wasn't taught about it under a different name. Tulsa race riot, absolutely not. Black Wall Street massacre, no. The Tulsa pogrom, no. Not even some vague descriptor like the troubles in Tulsa. It wasn't until I was an adult that I learned about it on my own 
in my 20s. Not even the social justice or American history classes I took in college mentioned this. Now, I have no shame in admitting that, nor do I have guilt, because I know many of you are like me. I am, however, filled with a disappointment that I still cannot fully understand to this day. Some of you might be learning about this still in this moment. Some of you might not have known that planes dropped homemade gasoline bombs on black neighborhoods. Some of you didn't know Greenwood in Tulsa was called Black Wall Street. And I wanna reiterate the era we live in, we are not called to be guilty or shamed unless we ignore what we learn. But in learning the history of Tulsa, it's about what we're going to do with that knowledge. As an eighth principle congregation, we are called to accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. And you can't dismantle what happened in the past, but you can reclaim it. You can dismantle the forces that would speak untruths about it or hide it from public view. The eighth principle also calls us to build beloved community and seek spiritual wholeness. From that imperative, some questions arise. What does Tulsa have to teach us today? What are we called to do as a congregation and as individuals with this knowledge? When we learn the complexities of the history, that the center of black wealth and prosperity in our nation was burned to the ground over an alleged crime that was, and it has never recovered. What on earth do you do? What can anyone do? Mary Jones Parish gives us a hint by telling us what will happen if we get stuck in only asking that question. She writes, even our Congress may sit idly by with folded hands and say, what can we do? Let me warn you that the time is fast approaching when you will want to do something and it will be too late. Do those words sound familiar to any of you? Do we have a Congress folding their hands asking what can they do even when democracy is threatened, even when poverty continues to grow in its severity, even when voices cry out for freedom. One of the most common things that I hear about racism or other injustices from well-meaning people usually is, when can we just get over it? I like to believe there is a pathway to hope in that question, because believe me, oppressed populations in our nation want to get over it. I imagine we all dream of that beloved community where equity is not just some distant hope, but a reality. But now is not the time for getting over it. No such thing is yet possible for any of us. What 2021 is calling us to do is not just to steward history, which means learning, digesting, grappling with, and retelling it. No, not just to steward it, not just to walk around feeling hopeless at the weight of the immense injustices and existential threats before us, racism, women's health, poverty, the climate crisis, and so on. No, there is no room for wallowing, for stewarding in such a way, for just wallowing in it. Mary Jones Parrish, quotes a piece of scripture at the end of her eyewitness account that gives a glimpse into what is really asked of us. 
She quotes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, if you have taken notes during our service with graduating seniors or at any time I preach on the founding of Unitarianism in our nation, you'll know that 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is foundational to who we are historically. And Mary Jones Parrish quotes, support the faint-hearted, help the weak. Are you faint-hearted at the thought of being in the work of justice? Are you uneasy? uncertain, afraid, too angry to trust your response to something else, then our work as a community is to support you in and those in our midst, in our community who feel likewise. For knowing we are not alone in our faint-heartedness, we discover courage deep down we did not know we had. Do we come from an oppressed population? Have we suffered injustices of our own? Have we experienced defeat and lost or unnoticeable progress in the work of justice in whatever it is? Does it all feel hopeless? This will not cure your hopelessness immediately, but we have seen in our history how hopelessness can be channeled to do good and right. We've seen it channeled to do evil as well. But for us, with our eight principles, with our joining together, with dozens of congregations across our county, with BUILD, with our environmental activism and hands-on work, with every letter, every meeting, every time we take a risk, the funny thing that I have learned about hopelessness in the face of evil and injustice is that it is often the very fuel that gives birth to hope anew. It is a great mystery of the human condition, yet read any personal account from any great sage or prophet or eyewitness or behind the scenes person, any saint or sinner or heretic or a single mother in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and you will see that hopelessness did not last long when they remembered they were enough and joined by others who struggled with them. That is our calling. Call it divine, call it rational, call it what you will. But our principles, our history, the broader history that is America can show us the way. Imperfectly, absolutely. Incomplete, yes. Just now being uncovered and told plainly, definitely. But there it is for us on this day 100 years later on the eve of a national tragedy. Before Mary Jones Parrish quoted that little piece of scripture, she asked the question, what does this teach us? It should teach us, she continues, look up, lift up, and lend a helping hand. And remember that we cannot rise higher than our weakest brother. Today we would add on to that, sister, sibling, cousin, stranger, friend, beloved, Look up, lift up, lend a helping hand. May we hold Tulsa, Tulsa in our hearts this week, stewarding that history and responding to the call before all of us. May it be so, and blessed be. Amen.